It's Matthew 15, 1 through 20. Then Pharisees and scribes came to Jesus from Jerusalem and said, Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat. He answered them, And why do you break the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? For God commanded, Honor your father and your mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, If anyone tells his father or mother what you would have gained from me is given to God, he need not honor his father. So for the sake of your tradition, you have made void the word of God. You hypocrites. Well did Isaiah prophesy of you when he said, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching his doctrines the commandments of men. And he called the people to him and said to them, Hear and understand. It is not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person, but what comes out of the mouth. This defiles a person. Then the disciples came to him and said, Do you know that the Pharisees were offended? When they heard the saying, he said, Every plant that my heavenly Father has not planted will be rooted up. Let them alone. They are blind guides. And if the blind lead the blind, both will fall into a pit. But Peter said to him, Explain the parable to us. And he said, Are you also still without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into the mouth passes into the stomach and is expelled? But what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart, and this defiles a person. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. These are what defile a person. But to eat with unwashed hands does not defile anyone. But at the end of the year and the dawning of a new one, what's something that we often do? Make resolutions. We take stock of what's passed over the last year, the last 365 days, and wonder... What might transpire in this case over the next 366 because it is a leap year? Some of us look at the year ahead with dread because we kind of read the headlines and we know that there's an election and all sorts of stuff start to play in our minds and our hearts. Some of us are glad to see the last year, this, this last year, move by. But we don't know what the next day brings. And so we look at the next year with hope, with sometimes fear and maybe with all sorts of feelings in between. Resolutions are common, and they typically focus upon doing what? Correcting something that we'd like to see changed, right? Changed and or improved, and typically with ourselves. Goal setting is another typical exercise. Over the next year, I'd like to make this a goal. Um, for, and, and those goals can take lots of different shapes. Often, there's a similar desire between the resolutions uh, that there would be some sort of personal improvement. These are good things to take stock of. If you're familiar with Jonathan Edwards, uh, an early American pastor, uh, at 17 years old, he sat down and wrote a list of over 90 resolutions. Uh, and they're, they're instructive to this day. And he is resolved to... And you can easily search those and read through them. It's pretty impressive for a young man of 17, the resolutions that he put down. And they're, they're good things to do, to take stock of. And as we do so, the question perhaps that we want to keep before us is, as I go through this helpful exercise, are all of these things that I want to see improved, am I submitting them, or am I committing them, first and foremost, to Christ? Is that where they come from? Are they from His Word? Are they guided by Him? 
Are they intended for his glory? And yes, they, they should bring some good. Do they serve to reveal him to those that he's placed us among? That we would, by his grace, by his provision, shine as stars in the world, which his word says in Christ we are. Or do, do they perhaps draw us away from him and from what his word clearly expresses? And when we look at this text before us today, we kind of see some of that coming out in the text because Jesus is taking issue with the traditions of men, the commitments that they have, how they do what they do, why they do it. The traditions of men, while being informed, which these were by the word of God, had been given priority over the word of God. Jesus is very clear. He says in this text that what you've done through your teachings is you've, you've ignored them, you've broken, and you have made void, emptied out the commandments of God, the word of God, by what your tradition, which found its roots there, has gone astray. Those traditions of men, which were informed by the word of God, have been given priority over the word of God in its clear direction. And Jesus addresses this in today's passage, and just as it spoke to the people of his day, so it speaks to us and ours as we examine our ways, the things we commit to, the things that we desire to do. And though tradition might not be a word we use much, we know we have traditions. We have, we have habits. We need to note at the outset that is, is tradition an inherently bad thing? Absolutely not. Traditions are, are pretty neutral. Traditions can be good things. We have a tradition that our service starts at 1030 and we are supposed to meet. That's instructed by God's word. But if we make 1030 to be the end-all, be-all, that in order to be godly and to serve God, we have to meet at 1030, do you see the problem with that? That's starting to take something and making that the end-all, be-all, as opposed to that no, we come together. And it might be at 1030. It might be at 6 p.m. It might be at a different time. And so when we look at this, we see that Jesus, as he's continuing to witness and minister. We come into Matthew chapter 15, and this is some of the last stuff that Matthew records about his ministry in Galilee. And it says, then, Jesus, then Pharisees and scribes came to Jesus from Jerusalem. And so they've come from Jerusalem, and what this is, is it's, it's an investigation delegation. That's who it is, scribes and Pharisees. Something similar happened in John 1.19 with John the Baptist. Remember, John the Baptist had quite a following, and he was baptizing, he was telling people to repent for the kingdom of God was, is at hand. And in John 1.19, we read that this is the testimony of John. When the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? They came as an investigation delegation to say, hey, are you the one that we're to look for? Or another, and John says, I'm not him, but I bear witness to him. And so here, Jesus, there's, there's a following. The things he'd been doing has made a stir. And so the Pharisees and the scribes, they're dispatched from Jerusalem, about a 90-mile trip. And they come up, and they, they perhaps are there to see him work, listen to him teach. But it's interesting that Matthew doesn't tell us specifically why they came. We're given the question they asked. We don't know that they came specifically to ask this question. It could be that as they came and they were witnessing him working, they noticed this little thing of the hand washing, and that's the question that they ask. And their question is, why do your disciples break the tradition of elders, for they do not wash their hands when they eat? 
So they basically come and say, we've got a question. And in their question, they're implying that Jesus also doesn't wash his hands before he eats. And so, therefore, he is also breaking the tradition of the elders because the students do as their teacher does. And so they ask this question, why, why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? And do you ever notice when Jesus answers a question, he typically does it with what? You know, why do people answer questions with questions? Why not? Right? And so he does. He answers this question with a question, but it's, made, it's designed to get to the heart of the issue. What is the most important thing? Because they're concerned, and their concern is, is real. If you go back and you read Leviticus 11, you see all sorts of things about staying clean, about keeping kosher, okay? not being defiled, animals that we can eat. This is how we wash our hands. These are the things that we do in order to remain clean, to remain set apart, because they were God's people set apart unto him, for him, and his witnesses to the world. But they ask this question, and Jesus turns around and says, well, I have a question as well. Why do you break the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? And so when we talk about the traditions of men, which is, which is what they were devoted to, we recognize that when it comes to washing, in Exodus 30, 20 and 21, the priests were required to wash their hands and their feet before ministering in the tabernacle. Because what did they do? They represented the people to God and God to the people. And so that was a requirement that was there. But never in any of the script, in any of the word, was such a requirement passed on to the general public in connection with eating foods. Now, those of you that don't like to wash your hands, this isn't giving you the pass to say, hey, I don't have to wash my hands anymore. It's a good practice. But we need to note that here, their concern wasn't microbes or germs because that was so far off there, that wasn't going to be discovered for thousand plus years. Their concern was defilement. And they'd taken something that was given to the priests in their priestly exercise in the temple and in the tabernacle and then put it onto the people. Well, why had they done that? Well, you have to remember some of the history of the Jewish people. Why had they been sent into exile? Because they'd broken what? They'd broken God's law. They'd broken God's covenant. And God said, if you break my covenant, here are, here, here are the, the punishments that come along with that. And they've been restored to the land. And as they were restored to the land, one of the things that lingers in their conscience is, we transgressed and we were sent into exile. We don't want that to happen again. And since we don't want that to happen again, we've got God's law, God's word right here, which we love. But we love it so much, we want to put something around it to ensure that if we don't offend here, then we can't offend there. They wanted to put a fence around it. And we, we can be the same way sometimes, right? Anybody got a precious possession that it's like, I like to get it out and maybe look at it every now and then, and I'll use it occasionally, but here's the rules around how you rightly use it, don't use it, and what have you. That's what they're trying to do. But in doing it, what they've done is they've, they've worked towards transgression because they've made that fence into the ultimate thing. And Jesus has dealt with them before. He dealt with them in Matthew, back in Matthew chapter 10. In Matthew chapter 10, he's talking about 
all of these things that can kill the body. He's talking about the reality that he sent out. He sent out the 12 apostles. And he talks about persecution coming. He talks about the fact that there's going to be division that comes. And when he's dealing with them, he's dealing with this reality that what's your concern? Is it obedience to God or is it obedience to men? And so as Jesus puts this before them, he says, you're concerned about dirty hands. But why do you break the commandment of God? And what he takes them to is the fifth commandment. Fifth commandment is honor your father and your mother. But then Jesus, he doesn't just stop there. We get an idea of how severe or how seriously Jesus takes what they've done in their enforcement of their tradition. Because he didn't just stop there with Exodus chapter 20 and the commandment about honoring your father and mother. It says, honor your father and mother. And then what he brings out is Exodus 21, 17. Whoever reviles father or mother must what? Surely die. So how seriously does Jesus take what they're doing in the enforcement of their tradition? He brings up this reality of honor your father and mother, but whoever doesn't, you're reviling your father and mother. And as you revile your father and mother, you're reviling God. And the consequence for that should be death. So, I mean, you like you ever you got that friend who when you're talking about something that's like all of a sudden they just up the stakes exponentially. It's like, whoa, I didn't see that coming. That's what Jesus has just done here. They've said, why do you, like, we haven't mentioned death. I mean, there's defilement, but we haven't to mention death. And Jesus says, hey, you're breaking the commandment of God, and this is what the commandment of God says. Honor your father and mother. Whoever reviles father and mother must die. And then he gives them the case in point. This is called Corbin. Mark gives us that in chapter 7, which is the parallel account. He goes right to it. You say, if anyone tells his father or mother what you would have gained from me is given to God, he need not honor his father. So he's gotten off the hook. So you are required by God's law to honor your father and mother. But this, this practice of Corbin was really taking, here's all the stuff that's mine, and I'm going to mark it off as Corbin, which means it's devoted to God, which means that it can't be touched for anything else. So where God in his top 10 says you're to honor your father and mother and that there's no expiration, it changes as we grow older. We recognize that. There's different, it changes what it looks like. But you've basically said, I don't have to keep this. I can break this. Because why? Because I've devoted everything that I have, mother and father, to God. And isn't that the most holy thing that we can possibly do? Do you hear how it has a sound of piety? Of, of religion, of holiness to it? Man, you must really love God to devote everything to it. Now, I really just don't want to take care of my folks. They wouldn't say that, by the way. No, it's Corbin. That's what Jesus is taking issue with him. And he proceeds right to the conclusion. So here's what you've done. So for the sake of your tradition, you have made void the word of God. How many of you like to make rules? How many of us, in the course of our day, get more upset over the rules that we have being broken than the commands of God being broken? 
that starts to hurt, doesn't it? Because when I start to, and I'm not going to throw anybody here under the bus set myself, when I look in the mirror, I see someone who on a regular basis is more upset over my rules being broken than what God has given us. Well, but I'm not saved by keeping the commandments. No, you're not. But aren't we supposed to remember the Word of God, what it calls us to, how it shapes our behavior? Well, yeah, but they did something really bad to me, and so that, that gets you off the hook. I just have to take stock of this and go, as much as I'd really like to not be in that group of Pharisees and scribes, more often than not, where do I find myself? In that place. The priests had that requirement. They had put that onto the people. And here we see what Jesus is later going to say. You take burdens and you tie them up on the people that just essentially they grind them down into the ground. He says, and here's how you've done it. You've taken traditions and you've elevated them. And what you've done is you've made void. What does that mean to make void? If you make something void, what do you do? You remove it. You kick it out. If something's void, it's no longer good. And he says, you hypocrites. He was saying to them, there's no law of God that says my disciples have to wash their hands before they eat a piece of bread. But, there is a law of God that tells you what you are to do with regard to your parents. Let's look at obedience to God rather than obedience to men. That's what he's calling them to. We can remember, maybe we remember, we go back into 1 Samuel. You remember when Samuel comes up and Saul hasn't done what he was supposed to do? And he tells Saul, as Saul's transgressed, he was supposed to wait, and he didn't wait. And he says, does the Lord have as much joy in these sacrifices as he does in obedience? You've got a psalm that says, I don't need your bulls and your goats. I own the cattle on a thousand hills. Won't you come to me in obedience? Because Jesus, as he walks through this passage, there's two central assertions here. He does violate religious traditions. But for good reason. Those religious traditions were often annulling God's law. And two, he ignores laws of purification because what defiles a man is not what goes into him, and he says this a couple of times, but what comes out. And he hits that when he cites Isaiah 29, 13. The Lord said, because this people draw near to me with their mouth, they give lip service, and honor me with their lips, they talk a good game. Well, their hearts are far from me. And we remember, the heart is the, the core of one's being, the center of one's being, everything that they are. With their hearts, far from me. Their fear of me is a commandment taught by men. And typically when men make up commandments about God, are they, are they kind towards God or are they critical of God? 
Are they the ones that say, he's a kind and benevolent father who stands ready to forgive, or he's waiting there to whack you? So mind your P's and Q's. Usually when man makes those laws about God, they're what? If we wonder, we can look at every other world religion that's out there. Do enough, and maybe, maybe you'll make it through. Christianity doesn't do that. And what the, what the religious leaders have done have said, this is more important than that. They've taken away that which was life and hope and promise to them. They had removed that which points forward to the one who would fulfill all of that for them, the one who's standing before them. This people draws near to me with their mouth. They talk such a great religious game, and they did because the people, the Pharisees, is like, if you asked the, the everyday Jew in those days, what does holiness look like? They would say, go look at my neighbor who's a Pharisee. That doesn't mean they liked him, but they said, they, 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 they got it down. They got that external obedience there. They know how to do it. But God's assessed this in the Old Testament. He continues in the New. You draw near me with your mouth and you honor me with your lips, but your hearts are so far from me. It goes on, therefore, behold, I will again do wonderful things with this people. And he's doing it right here in the midst of what we're reading. Who's before them? Emmanuel, God with us. The one whose word he's teaching right here. Here's wonderful things in front of the people. Wonder upon wonder and the wisdom of their lives. Hear what he says about it. The wisdom of their wise men, it'll perish. The discernment of their discerning men shall be hidden. They're in the darkness and they don't even know it. They think they're in the light. The Pharisees have good words, but neither faith nor good deeds. Worse, they claim to worship God. Yet they condemn God's Son because He ignores their traditions. That's what's taking place here. Because they're, they're, when they're drawing in to question the, the disciples, they're drawing in to question him. Hey, you're defiled. Can you imagine standing before the Son of God and saying, hey, you're defiled? Because you didn't wash your hands before you ate that piece of fish that you just ate. And can you imagine the restraint of the Son of God who's just been sinned against and them calling him defiled? How many of us have that much restraint when we're, when we're offended? And yet it's the glory of God to overlook what? Here's God himself overlooking an offense because the religious leaders of Israel have just said, by extension, Jesus, you're defiled because you break the tradition. So Jesus, he responds, he has this question, he puts before him the reality of, by your tradition, you are breaking the law, you are making it void. And, and he, doesn't have to, he doesn't have to explain this to them because in the privacy of their own hearts, what do they know? They know he's right. But they've already started to plot against him. They've seen that. And so he leaves that there as he cites Isaiah to them and turns and he called the people to him and he said to them, hear and understand. So understanding is connected to hearing. And it's very brief what he says to them, isn't it? He calls the people to him, and he says, it's not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person. Now, that doesn't mean that there's not things that you put in your mouth that are going to make you sick. Remember, we're talking about defilement, talking about being made unclean. 
He's saying, it's not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person, but what comes out of the mouth that def this defiles a person. And it seems that the religious leaders are still present within earshot. And, and that's what he tells the people. Hearing and understanding are linked. The Pharisees and the scribes, what were they doing? Refusing to hear, therefore they wouldn't understand. And that's all he leaves before the people. And then the disciples came. And so now he's going to instruct the disciples. His instruction of the people in 10 and 11 was brief. 12 through 20, we get to the instruction of the disciples. And what's the disciples' first concern when they come to him? The disciples came to him, came and said to him, Do you know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard this saying? They're concerned about what? Jesus. The religious leaders, they didn't like what you said very much. And what's Jesus' response? He answered, Every plant that my heavenly Father has not planted will be rooted up. Oh, do you feel the pain of that? Do you feel the, the depth of that, of what he's saying? Because there's a connection here to something we've already read in Matthew. If we go back in Matthew, not very far to chapter 13. Do you remember the parable of the weeds? What, what has Jesus just implied? Here then, the parable of the weeds. The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. So when the plants came up and bore grain, then the weeds appeared also. And the servants of the master of the house came and said to him, Master, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have weeds? He said to them, An enemy has done this. So the servants said to him, Then do you want us to go and gather them? But he said, No, lest in gathering the weeds you root up the wheat along with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. And at harvest time I will tell the reapers, Gather the weeds first and bind them in bundles and to be burned, but gather the wheat into my barn. What has Jesus just said about them? Who planted them? He's implying the enemy planted them. Do you feel, do you, do you feel the dire destination for these religious leaders if their ways are not changed? Because when he says, Every plant that my heavenly Father has not planted will be rooted up. And we read it in the context of what Jesus has already taught. They were planted by the enemy. What does God root up? What does God prune away? That which is unfruitful, that which is not his. That's what he's saying here. This would peel the disciples' eyebrows as far up and back as they could go. Because he's just said something very serious about the religious leadership of Israel. He says, every plant that my heavenly Father is not planted will be rooted up. Let them alone. He's basically saying, let them be. Disregard them. Remember, later on what he's going to say is, they sit in Moses' seat, so listen to what they say, but do not what? Do as they do. Because their lips, they're not saying something untrue, but their hearts are so far from me, they don't do what those words say. He says, dis, 
regard them. They were offended, but they were offended because what they've done is they've rejected God, they've rejected His Word. They are blind guides. And if the blind lead the blind, both will fall into a pit. He sets up this physical example that kind of, I mean, it seems like it goes without saying, right? You got a blind person who needs guidance. Who are you going to put in front of them? Another blind person or someone who sees? Unless you're a jerk, someone that sees. You don't put a blind person in front of a blind person to lead them. Jesus says it's very simple. Physically, they're going to end up in a ditch. It's a physical depiction of a spiritual reality. What he's saying is these leaders are blind. Notice he doesn't say that they're going to remain in that place. They could. But as long as they are blind and they lead those that are blind, there's one destination for them. And then Peter. Don't you love Peter? Explain the parable to us. And we like to pretend like we wouldn't ask that question, right? Like this one seems pretty, 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 pretty plain, Peter, right? But let's not elevate ourselves over Peter. Peter, explain the parable to us. And Jesus says he doesn't berate him for it. Like we're so often ready to take Peter down a notch. You're like, come on, Peter, this one's obvious. And Jesus isn't like, you dope. He doesn't do that. Explain the parable to us. And he does ask the question, are you also still without understanding? And then he seeks to what? Give understanding. Do you not see that whatever goes into the mouth? And do you hear him repeating himself? Repetition is part of this. Do you not see that whatever goes into the mouth passes into the stomach and is expelled, and some translations include into the latrine? He's making it real clear what direction the digestive system goes. But what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart, and this defiles the person. And so he's teaching them here, and he wants them to understand, guys, it's not about what I eat. Mark puts in this place, and thereby he declared all foods clean. Matthew doesn't include that, probably because he's writing to a Jewish audience and he doesn't want to put a stumbling block in front of them. But he says, what you put in doesn't defile, it's what comes out. And then, do you notice that list that he gives them? For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, and slander. Sounds an awful lot like what? Part of the Ten Commandments. And when we look at it, he starts with, not, no surprise to us, he starts with evil thoughts. And he's already taught this back in the Sermon on the Mount, right? Hey, you say, I haven't murdered anyone, therefore I've kept the commandment. He says, have you been angry with your brother? And we go, Because that thought is a sin. Evil thoughts would be any thoughts that are against God who we are to love how? With all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Evil thoughts would also be any thoughts that would be against our neighbor who we're supposed to what? Love as ourselves. All of these come from that. No matter how short, shortly thought out or long thought out, all of these proceed from, out of the heart, evil thoughts, because the heart and the mind are together, from, come out what? Murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. It goes without saying that honor your father and mother is included in that. He's already addressed some of that, and that would still be fresh on their minds. 
He lists the commandments. And it's interesting that he doubles sexual sin and sins of the tongue. Where, where do we as people have a tendency to be the most inclined? With murder, that one's easy, right? I think I can stay away from that. Sexual sin? Man struggled with it for all of, all of eternity since the fall. Not, not living according to God's rule for what he created, how it's supposed to be used, how it's supposed to be rightly, properly, and well enjoyed. What about the tongue? How many of us are really good at taking care of that tongue? We've never had to apologize and repent for anything we've ever said that came out maybe the wrong way. He knows us, doesn't he? And he doubles that up. Is that to double our attention to, I really need to pay attention because I don't want to compromise in any of these areas. And what he's pointing them to is, guys, what we have here, it's not the food that's before you. It's not a food before you issue. It's a heart issue. Because we sin because we're sinners. We're not sinners because we sin. We sin because we're sinners. And that's a heart issue. That's what he's pointing them to. The heart, Jeremiah 17, 9 says, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? And so when you try to start doing something that's been designed by a fallen heart, what chance do you have? Because when we know that the heart is deceitful, what does deceit do? It seeks to mislead you, to take you astray. You have a heart issue out of the heart. Hey, and how many times, how many stories, how many movies, how many shows, how many things we've seen where somehow these things that are listed in others, well, those are okay in that situation. You want to know how deceitful the heart is? How often in the stories that are told do they try to get you to sympathize with the one who's done these horrible things if you just understood their backstory? Basically see every new Disney movie lately that has to do with the retelling of all the you know, bad guys, right? If you, knew their, if you knew their backstory. And it's not just them, there's others too. What are we trying to do? The heart is deceitful above all things. So if I can make this look okay, then what can I do? I can get off the hook. Because deep down I really know what? I'm on the hook and I can't what? I can't get off. The heart's deceitful above all things. But more than that, guys, the heart, it's not just that the heart's deceitful, because the heart has an issue, the hands have an issue. So in one regard, those Pharisees, they're right, dirty hands, right? But the hands are a picture of the things that we do. And, and my father, he's given us the word that tells us about our hands. And, he, and in Isaiah 64, 6, says, We have all become like one who is unclean and all our righteous deeds. Those deeds that are by the law good, those righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. Because why? Because they're done by polluted hands and deceitful hearts. We fade like a leaf 
And our iniquities like the wind take us away, Isaiah says. So we've got a heart issue and we've got a hands issue. And what Jesus wants them to know and what he wants us to know. No one gains purity by keeping external regulations. He wants the apostles, he wants the disciples to know that. No one loses purity by disregarding them. Again, it's not that tradition is bad, but we can use tradition badly, can't we? The heart is the source of human affections, of human passions, of human drives. And we like to hold on to those because we like to sanctify those. But we also know the heart is the source of human what? Sin. The heart produces evil thoughts and evil deeds follow. By saying this, Jesus, what does he do? He flatly rejects the scribe's claim to interpret the law rightly. He knows what the law teaches. They do not. He interprets the law. He embodies the law. Remember, he's already said, I've come to fulfill it all the way up. He fulfills the law. And here's the other part that we don't want to forget. He remedies every breach of the law. Did you hear that? He remed- What's a remedy? Something that fixes, something that heals. He remedies every breach of the law. That's what he came for. That's what he's pointing to. Israel's leaders, they see none of this because they do not trust him. In our day and age, those that don't see it, they don't see it because they don't trust him. And he's given more evidence. He's the remedy for what? Everything. Death. Undone. And we like to read this, and as we read this and we see, man, he really took it to those, took it to those Pharisees, didn't he? Didn't I just bring a smile to your face? Yeah, take that, bad guys. Check yourself. A faithful response begins not with admiration of Jesus' demolition of the Pharisees, but with a confession of personal sin. Because there's none without sin. Now notice something that Jesus did. How many hoots did Jesus give about what the Pharisees thought about what he said? None. They took offense. And something that we need to remember, but we have to take this, we have to understand this, we have to hold this, in the humility that it's that that, that, it, that this is intended in. It is not my duty, and it's not your duty as a Christ follower to please everyone with what I say and do. Christ has said that as we follow and confess him, the world will what? Hate us. It's not gonna like some of the stuff we do. We are to take care of that so far as may be in our own power, and our manner of teaching shall give no offense. But we know that there will be those that what? Take offense. But it would be the height of madness to think of exercising greater moderation than we've been taught to do by our heavenly master. Jesus puts the truth before them, and they what? Are offended by it. And Jesus doesn't go back to them saying, Oh, guys, how can I resolve any offense that you took at this? He didn't say it offensively, but they took it that way. 
Because we have a responsibility. As the responsibility comes to us, we must identify blind guides. If you love the people around you and you see them following a blind guide, are you going to let them continue following a blind guide? If you do, you don't what? You don't really love them. Now, do you understand how this gets messy really fast? Because if God has opened your eyes to identify that, you need to be start with yourself, right? Get the sawdust. But if you know that there's a blind guide out there and they're leading someone that you care about in a direction that takes them away from God, you care, you love, you have to let them know. But again, sometimes those blind guides, there's some love lines that have been con connected, right? That gets hard. So as we bear, as we tell the truth, we need to recognize that the truth, when the truth hits and it hits with its full force, sometimes it, it hurts a little bit. We have to identify blind guides. And here's the thing. Blind guides... Guess how much they're going to like that? They're not. That's putting it lightly. These blind guides that Jesus revealed, what would they do to him? They were already conspiring, weren't they? He didn't give an inch to those blind guides. He's going to get more offensive here in a few chapters too. Blind guides are not going to like that, and they will respond with increasing venom and malice. Our hope, as that duty is accomplished, is that the Savior would dawn upon them with His redeeming light, graciously granting them eyes to see in place of their blindness, and that through their repentance they would be revealed to be plants that were planted by the Heavenly Father and that will not be uprooted. That's not easy. That's the hard work. They weren't kind to me. I know. I wish they were, but we live in a fallen world. Continue to hold on to him. Bear witness to the truth. As much as it depends upon you to do it without offense, knowing that there will be those who take offense. So our faithful response, it begins not with admiration of Jesus' demolition of the Pharisees, but with a confession of personal sin. And as we confess personal sin, and as we live and move among those around us, and we love them and care about them, and we see something, we, we ask the question, hey, I'm concerned. Maybe that's the problem. Sometimes we go in, you're listening to lies. Hey, I'm concerned about something that you, you, you said, or I heard something that is, I know you respect this person, this is what they said. What do you think about that? Think about how you can enter into those conversations as Christ came into them, caring for the person, loving the person. And we do meet that resistance, understanding that we cannot bow to that which is false, and we don't make peace with that which is false, but we continue to witness in the midst of those who might be false. External rules, we're good at them. The reason I didn't get into that today is because we all have our lists and we all like to make lists. And the problem is our external rules often become what? Exactly what the Pharisees' rules had become. More important than the Word of God. Nothing can become more important than the Word of God. And we start that examination within our own hearts. If there's anything in this that is not true to what your Word reveals, no matter 
how much I might love this teacher, this person, this what have you. Give me the desire to cut it off because I don't want to be led astray. External rules, taste not, touch not, handle not, they can't address the real problem, which is the evil that lies in men's hearts. Only Jesus, working by the power of his Holy Spirit, can change the heart. That change is essential if there is to be real obedience to the commandments of God. Put another way. What is it that God desires? In Psalm 51, David writes, A broken and a contrite heart you will not refuse. So when I come to God, that's what God says. But I want to come with anything but that. Don't I? I want to come with, look at what I've done for you. Look at what I've done with what you've given me. Look at what I, 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 and he says, no, come to me, a broken and a contrite heart, I will not refuse. But God, that's the hardest thing to come before you with. I know. And in Christ, I've given you a new one. That's humble and broken and contrite. Don't look back to that old way, to that hard, whole heart. Come with the heart that I've given you. Live in the life of the heart that I've given you. And yeah. That is harder because what are you asking God to do? To keep you alive, to keep you soft, because you know that what? You would not keep yourself alive. You would not keep yourself soft. You would not keep yourself obedient. You would rather say, look at all this stuff I've done for you. The contrite heart says, thank you for bringing me to life. And he says, I'm going to reward these things that you've done. But the contrite heart doesn't appeal to those things. It comes in Christ. Because the tricky thing and the difficult thing about men, as soon as we allow ourselves to wander beyond the limits of God's Word, did you ever notice the more labor and anxiety comes in worshiping God? The further away from His Word we get and we make those rules, there's more labor, there's more anxiety the heavier is the condemnation that they draw down upon themselves when we do that. Do you know why that is? More labor comes because it becomes about what we do. Have I checked the whole list off? Have I done enough? More anxiety comes because we don't have any guarantees that it will be received. But contrast that with what Christ gives. What is the believers in Christ? Whose labor is accepted before God? And on behalf of whom? Christ's labor, His active obedience is accepted by God on your behalf. It's what He's given to you in His righteousness. His full obedience. His overflow. Labor and anxiety are done away with because Christ has finished His work and is seated at the right hand of the Father and He says that you who are in Christ are one with Him as He's one with the Father. So I don't have to worry about my labor. 
Because he's done everything and I can't add to it. Anxiety is dissipated because why? I don't have to worry because my Savior has gone to him on my behalf. And in a very real sense, I am there with him, in him, before my Father. Do you see how that does away with labor and anxiety? And it doesn't mean I sit around and be a good for nothing. It means that what I do is now I work with the spirit and the love and the energy that he has given, that I would labor for the joy of the Lord is my strength. And if I see the fruit of that, then I see it. But if I don't, I know he doesn't waste a thing. Don't make your own lists. Receive he who God has sent. Do not stray from his word. Ask that he would keep you near it. And as you draw your resolutions, as you make your goals, do so from him and his word and daily submit them all to him that we wouldn't build a fence that would take us away from the one he has given.